We'll plan on looking at uh, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13 of Isaiah chapter 6. We'll read it and then consider it under uh, four headings or four different parts. So before we read it and consider it, I invite you to bow with me in, in prayer together. Our Father, we're coming to you asking that you would be gracious to us, that you would work in our hearts, that you'd work in our minds, that you'd renew them, that we could see the glories of what you've done for us in Christ, the holiness of you, which, which was an obstacle to our fellowship with you, which you figured out how to overcome so that we could enjoy your presence and be sent on your mission. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to see these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make these words that are on the pages live in our hearts and equip us for what it is you'll call us to. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Isaiah 6 at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump thus far God's word to us this morning may he bless it to our hearts and lives so beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, I want to uh, unfold this passage with, uh, in just four ways. I want us to see, number one, how the holiness of God offends us. Secondly, how the holiness of God convicts us. Thirdly, how the atonement of God heals us. And then finally, how the mission of God sends us. So those four things, how the holiness of God offends us, how it convicts us, how God's atonement heals us, and then how the mission of God sends us. So first, we'll look at uh, verse one, just the first part of it, how the holiness of God God offends us. If you take a look at it, notice what Isaiah writes. It's interesting. In the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah sets this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now this is an odd way of saying this. Other prophets don't do this. Isaiah actually does it twice. He did it in four, chapter 14, verse 28, referring to the death of Ahaz. He could have written this. In the 52nd year of the reign of King Uzziah, 
Or he could have written in the first year of the reign of King Jotham. And as commentators have pointed this out, I think they're on to something. Why is he drawing attention to King Uzziah's death rather than his reign or the reign of the one who is after him? I think it forces us to, to take a look back at King Uzziah's death and see what took place. And, and when you do, it looks rather meaningful. It took place in Second Chronicles 26. Now, Uzziah was made king at 16 years of age. He reigned for 52 years. During his reign, Judah enjoyed really large borders, a healthy military, and the people were feeling pretty safe and secure. Right at the end of King Uzziah's life, this took place. It's really the last snippet of his life, and then he dies, and we don't hear about him again. Second Chronicles 26, 16. I want to read it for you. But when King Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. But for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper till the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord." Uzziah's pride had gotten the best of him, beloved. He walked into the presence of a holy God. And it's as if Isaiah is contrasting, look, in the year King Uzziah died, this is what happened. Uzziah went into the presence of God's holiness, and he was struck with leprosy. Now I'm going to tell you what it's like to stand in God's presence as well, in the presence of a holy God. And we're going to see a different outcome in the life of, I, of Isaiah. What I think Isaiah, what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to consider is at least this in light of Uzziah's death and what took place. That the greatest of men and the greatest of women are just men and just women. We're flesh, beloved. And when Uzziah's greatness went to his head, and he thought, I can walk in here and offer incense. I can do just what the priests do. It doesn't matter how the Lord says, here's how you come to me. Here's who can come to me. Here's who can do this. When Uzziah got too big for his own britches, as it were, and he walked in, God set the record straight. You can't come to me however you want. He's infinitely holy. He tells us how we can come. Uzziah breached it, and God reminded him, you're just a man. Here's leprosy. You've been tremendously great, but your pride has gotten the best of you. So beloved, it's good for each of us to remember for ourselves and for others, the greatest of people are only people, human beings made in God's image to be sure, but flesh and bones. And when we deal with the Lord himself, when we come into his presence, we are in an entirely different realm. There's an entirely different set of rules, an entirely different set of standards. And it's for all of us to know this. And Isaiah begins his account of being in God's presence with how things went south with Uzziah. I think just to get our attention so that we're really aware when we come into the holy presence of God, there's, there's a set of rules which we abide by or it goes south really, really fast fast. 
Well, I want us to see then secondly that the holiness of God convicts us. This is in verses 1b to 5. So I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. After the earthly king died, so Isaiah died, okay? Isaiah then saw the real king. Uzziah's done, he's gone, and Isaiah is ushered into the presence of the real king, and he sees him sitting on a throne. Now, he's seen King Uzziah sit on a throne before, but he's never seen a throne like this. And he's seen King Uzziah dressed in royal robes, but he's never seen a robe, the train of which fills the entire temple. And he's describing this. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He's seen King Uzziah high and lifted up as well and and honored for all of his work, but he's never seen a king this high, beloved. And above him stood the seraphim, these couriers, these servants. And he describes them. They have six wings. Two were for humility. They covered their face from the infinite radiance of God. Two were for restraint, we could say. They covered the feet telling we're not going anywhere that God doesn't send us. Wherever he wants us to go, we will. And then with two, they flew. With, they, had, they had two wings for a mobility that they could go wherever the Lord would have them go. And the seraphim called to one another in this vision, in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the Hebrew language it's kind of like a third grader language, as my Hebrew prof used to describe it. Uh, the, the, the sentences say, and if you're going to describe going to the store, you say, and he got into the car, and he shut the door, and he turned the key, and then he uh, put the, put the uh, 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 transmission in reverse, and then he backed out of the driveway, and every thought is a new sentence. So in Hebrew, if you're going to emphasize something, you say, you say the word twice. You can think of holy holies, the most holy place as we know it, or the holy place with one. But in Hebrew, if you're trying to emphasize something to the nth degree, you repeat it over and over and over again, and three times is really the holiest of all. So what's going on here is not a doctrine of the Trinity necessarily, but the, 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 seraphim, the seraphim, the cherubim, as they're calling out to one another, is, as all of heaven is resounding with this, not just these creatures, but other creatures, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You can't get any more holy than this. The holiest of all. More holy even than the holy of holies. Because here we have three holies describing God. And nowhere else in all of scripture, if some of you are familiar with R.C. Sproul, his ministry was kind of built on this. His book, The Holiness of God, was kind of a watershed in teaching modern day reformed people what it is to be in the presence of God and what his holiness is like. He was keen to point out and that nowhere do we read love, love, love is the Lord of hosts or light, light, light is the Lord of hosts, even though God is love and God is light. But here we hear, and we hear in heaven in Revelation, all throughout Scripture, there's one thing God is, and it's above everything. Behold it. He's holy. Not just holy, but holy, holy. And not just twice holy, but three times. Holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the house was filled with smoke. This is a vision of Mount Sinai. 
Moses goes up on the mountain, smoke comes down, peals of thunder, and everything shakes. The ground is shaking. The foundations of the thresh, the, the, everything shakes. Down to your feet, the whole earth is like an earthquake because Isaiah is standing in the very presence of God. And when Isaiah was in the midst of this, a thrice holy God in all of his glory and splendor, in all of his majesty, awful, terrible, majestic, amazing, he was convicted of three things. The first is this, his own hell worthiness. Woe is me, for I am lost. Woe is me. Now, if you've read through Isaiah up to this point, you'll have heard him cry out woes, especially in the previous chapter. Chapter 5, 8, verse 8 of Isaiah, woe to those who join house to house. Isaiah 5, 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Isaiah 5, 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Isaiah 5, 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. You can think of Jesus' woes to the Pharisees. And here in the presence of God, Isaiah says something just astonishing. Woe is me. Not woe is everybody else, but woe is me. He felt it. He felt the woe of God. He felt the tremendous holiness of God. He felt himself being absolutely undone. Another way of saying I am lost or I am undone is this. He's just smashed into silence. He's just shattered into stillness. He has nothing to say. When uh, a, a, an image of this was actually, we've had a tornado here now, but in Joplin, Missouri, when that tornado came through and wreaked havoc on it years ago, we were living about an hour away in Springfield. When a tornado comes through, there's a calm before the storm, right? Then the storm comes through, and there's an incredible calm after the storm. No cars are moving because they're all wrecked. No people are bustling. Everybody's hiding or, or away from the scene. There's no animals. There's no nothing in the midst of this zone of destruction. And beloved, God's holiness just ripped through Isaiah's life. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. He looks like what happens after a tornado walks through. He's destroyed. He's finished into utter silence. And he has nothing to say. He just stands before the Lord, completely finished. This is what the perfect holiness of God does to men, beloved. And Paul kind of alludes to it in Romans 3.19. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. When we come into the presence of God, we're just undone in and of ourselves. All of us are laid bare and all of our mouths are stopped. Have you ever felt this? that the only thing you really deserve that I deserve is, is simply hell itself in the presence of a holy God. That, that's what Isaiah is going through. Woe is me. I should be sent to hell. I should be damned. I should be under God's wrath. Woe to me. I'm lost. That's exactly what he felt, beloved. I ask you, have you experienced this? Have you, have you come to grips with this? That that's really what we deserve. Isaiah wasn't lying here. This isn't an exaggeration. It's human flesh coming into the presence of a perfectly holy God. And that's the result. He was convicted, secondly, of his own sinfulness. I'm a man of unclean lips, verse 5. 
Literally, a man unclean of lips am I. He was so sinful right in there, he couldn't even praise God. (laughs) He just, my lips are unclean. I can't do anything except stand here. And then he was convicted of the sin of all mankind. I live among a people of unclean lips as well. We're all sinful. We're dirty when we come into the presence of God. Love, I want us just to consider this. The holiness of God is so morally pure, it causes the holiest of men to feel utterly sinful and damnable in his presence. We might sometimes forget this. You know, we, we live our lives before other people. It, it, there's no real illustration of this in the world. You come before the president, right? That's kind of a holy place. You might want to dress a certain way and say certain things. You're going to be kicked out or you go before the queen of England. There's going to be etiquette there. But we're still coming before fellow human beings. But to come in the presence of God is just, it's astonishing. It's, it's heart-stopping. There's just nothing like it. Beloved, it's good for us to, to recognize this. When Isaiah when his, was in God's presence, he was stopped. If you and I were there, it would have been the same thing. You remember Peter in Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw the huge catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Beloved, in the very presence of God himself, when people come to see who he is, they fall down, they stop, and they're just enamored with who this God is, with how holy he is, and with how sinful we are. Peter, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Peter feels his own sin right in the presence of Jesus after Jesus instructed him on basically how to catch some fish. In the presence of others, we might deceive ourselves into thinking we're almost morally impeccable. We like to compare ourselves. Usually we compare our best to others' worst, right? Because then we always end up on top. (laughs) But what do we do? What does any human being do when we take our best in the presence of God's worst? There's nothing to do because God's worst is infinitely holy. There is no worst part of God. And our best, Isaiah was not, was not a horrible individual. Isaiah was a man, you could argue, after God's own heart. Isaiah was a godly man, and he walks into God's presence, and he says, I'm done. I'm lost. <laughs> I don't belong here. He's holy. I'm not holy. I want us to consider one more thing before we move on to the third point. Spiritual revival, which is what Isaiah underwent, is always initially painful. Always. He's going through a lot of pain right now. The pain of having to throw away what he thought was a clean mouth. The pain of thinking, you know, I'm clean before the Lord. He's entirely undone, beloved. Stripped of everything that he thought he had before God. When you and I, maybe you'll, you'll be able to recount this tonight in discussion groups or maybe, you, maybe you've not experienced this much, but, but know this, that so many times before God brings spiritual revival into our lives, pain is first. Just like in Isaiah, he strips us of things. He shows us who we are in light of him. And then he heals us and revives us. But so often it begins with difficulty, like the difficulty that Isaiah is undergoing and standing in God's presence and being stripped of everything that he thought he had. Well, the next thing I'd like us to see is that the atonement of God heals us, verses 6 and 7. So then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, when the seraph flew to him with the coal from the altar, Isaiah might have thought, I'm done. I'm a goner. 
He is, he's saying, woe to me. He feels lost. He feels the dirt of his own sin on his mouth and the dirt of the mouths of other people around him. And now all of a sudden there's a seraph going to the altar, grabbing a hot coal and coming to him. And Isaiah might have thought, I'm the next sacrifice. Like the Lord's going to, he's going to do me in. He's going to burn me up. I'm finished. And to his astonishment, that's not what at all happened. The seraph flew to him and touched Isaiah's lips and said, with, with, a, with a great word, a word of good news, your, your sins atoned for. I'm not coming here to destroy you, Isaiah. I'm not coming here to burn you, to sacrifice you, to end you. I'm actually coming to heal you. And notice how the healing works. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Where does the seraph put the burning coal? Not on Isaiah's feet, not on his hand but right in the very place that he felt sinful and dirty. Amazing. What's going on? The Lord brings atonement and healing in the very place where Isaiah feels it. Puts the coal right on his lips. Says, your guilt's done away with. Your sin is atoned for. Now, there's a few things going on here, beloved. Number one, God initiates this atonement. Heaven initiates this. Isaiah didn't say, please atone for my sin. No, the Lord's commanding the seraph, as it were. Seraph is doing this. Go take the coal and touch his lips. And the atonement was painfully applied right where Isaiah needed it, right where he needed to be healed, right where he felt absolutely condemned and undone. And it was accompanied by a word of explanation. It's not like the seraph just put the coal on his lips and said, okay, we're done now. Off you go. But he said, no, let me tell you what this means. Let me tell you what's going on now. Let me tell you what's happening right now, Isaiah. Your guilt on account of this is taken away and your sin is atoned for by what I am doing right here. There was a word of explanation with this. And I, this is one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite verses because it's so beautiful, beloved. Here we see a great portrait of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not just come to this earth our Savior, and simply die on a cross and then go away. He didn't just die on a cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, and and not say anything. But He came and accomplished our redemption, healed us where we're broken, applied His redemption right to our very lives where we need it, and accompanied it with a word of explanation. We call it the Old Testament. We call it the New Testament. He tells us what He's doing. Let me tell you what's going on. Why am I perfectly obeying the commandments? Because you guys can't and you need righteousness. So I'm doing all this to fulfill all righteousness. So he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. There's an explanation. Well, Lord, why are you going to the cross? Because you need someone to die in your place. Because you should die in place of your sin. You should die in your sins and I'm dying in your place. That's why I'm going to the cross. Why ascending? We get an explanation. Why are you coming to judge the living and the dead? So you can come be with me in glory. That's why. Beloved, God's atonement in our lives comes with a word of explanation so that we're not left wondering, what is God doing? How does this work? How can I be saved? How can I have hope? He explains it all. Tremendous good news. I want us to think about this just briefly, then we'll, we'll move on. That God atoned for Isaiah's sins in the place where he felt it most keenly. I think this is... 
the work of Christ is so multifaceted. It's so variegated. It's not just in the, it's not just in the courtroom. It's not just in the realm of the slave trade. It's not just in the realm of, of the priestly work of propitiation and God's wrath and satisfying it. It's, it's all over beloved. There's so many portraits of God's redemption. And I, I think we'd have to conclude that God knows that each Christian feels uh, the pain of sin and the, the awfulness of God's holiness in a different way so that we all need to be ministered to in a different way by God. And, and Christ's work is so enormous that he can do just that. Sin makes some of us feel ugly, right? It makes some of us feel guilty. It makes some of us feel anxious. Some of us lonely, some of us worthless, some of us dirty like Isaiah, some of us hopeless. And when God comes into our lives, when Christ comes into our lives, he heals us in those very spots. And even after we're converted, as he grows us in holiness and we become more and more convicted of our sin, he heals us then as well. I'll just use just a couple of examples. For those who feel dirty like Isaiah did, the good news comes with this astonishing word of cleansing, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by what? The washing of regeneration. 1 Corinthians six eleven. such were some of you, but you were washed. Beloved, do you, do you feel dirty in your sin? As you consider the perfect holiness of God, do you find yourself just dirty, just wanting to be cleansed? Well, you've been cleansed in Christ. Look to him. You've been washed at your conversion. Be reminded of this great truth. You can be washed of your sins, not just once fully, but also as we go through life. That's what forgiveness is all about and God's assurance of pardon. We're cleansed of these things. Even in our conscience, we're cleansed of these things. Jesus became dirty. He absolutely covered himself in the filth of our sin. He looked horrible on the cross covered in dirt, covered in our mess, so that we could be clean, beloved. You're squeaky clean before God. But there's also, maybe you feel worthless or abandoned. Remember that great passage in Ezekiel 16, where God says, I came by you on the day of your birth. You weren't washed. You're sitting there in your blood dying. (laughs) Nobody cared for you. Nobody wanted you. Your own mother abandoned you. How much worse does it get than that? And he said, I came by and I looked at you and I said, live. Do you feel worthless in your sin? Abandoned? Well, catch this. God has walked by you, beloved, and said, you're mine. I'm going to care for you like no mother ever could. Live. And he dresses us up and makes us look beautiful. He says in Hebrews, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Maybe some of us feel guilty. Our sin makes us, just racks our conscience. No way God can love me. I'm I'm guilty as can be. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, you can work this out in your own life. Work it out with Christian friends. Work it out. How is God's holiness frightening you? How is coming into his presence scaring you maybe? Making you tremble because the gospel can heal you in those very spots. You're going to be in his presence. Get healing for it. Let Christ's work heal you where you need to be healed. And then finally, the mission of God sends us. So verses, it begins at verse 8. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send (laughs) and who will go for us? Then Isaiah speaking, then I said, here I am, send me. 
And he said, go and say to this people. And then we, we see what the Lord called him to. And we're not going to dive into all the details of this. Jesus picks up on this, especially in reference to the parables in the New Testament. But I want us to notice something about Isaiah here. He volunteers to serve God unconditionally. Check verse 8 out. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And before God even said, here's the commission, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Stop for a moment, beloved. Isaiah had no idea what God was going to send him to do. And it didn't matter. I stood in the presence of a perfectly holy God. I realized that I deserve to go to hell. Woe to me. I'm undone. I'm lost. He atoned for my sin. He gave me new life. He He fixed this problem between me and him. And now we're friends. Now I'm not an enemy with God anymore. And then the Lord says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah immediately, having been healed, says, I'm ready to go, Lord. (laughs) Send me. Put me in. And he has no idea what God's calling him to yet. Not a clue. The Lord hadn't told him. Beloved, this is what takes place in our lives as well. Just like Isaiah. When we really get the atonement and what God has done for us. When we really felt down to the bone of our bones, probably not like Isaiah because we weren't there, but we've still felt it by faith that God is infinitely holy and there's no way I can have a relationship with him again. There's no way unless he atones for my sin through Christ and he's healed me and he's made me whole again and he set me on my feet and I'm on a rock now and he's given me eternal life and he's paid for all my sins and there's nothing about my future now in heaven that will at all be horrible or bad. In fact, everything's glorious and good. He's done all this for me. The only response, beloved, is this. Sent, I'm in, Lord. I don't care what you want me to do. I don't care where you want me to go. I don't care how much pain and suffering you're going to call me through or how many joys and successes. I'm ready to go. Put me in. Let's go. Here I am. Send me. One commentator wrote this. Having believed with certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God and having received an unsought for and unmerited complete cleansing, what else would he rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Those who need to be coerced are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. So Isaiah, permitted for a moment to eavesdrop on the counsels of God, cannot keep silent. Would I do? Such a grateful offering of themselves is always the cry of those who've received God's grace after they've given up hope of ever being acceptable to God. Have you ever given up hope, had no hope of being acceptable to God? And then this great good news comes through to your brain and just rings. Of course you're not acceptable, but God has made you acceptable in Christ. You're accepted. You're in. Jesus did it all. When that rings in our ears, we don't need to be coerced to serve the Lord. Lord, wherever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'm in. Let's go. We volunteer. Something else about Isaiah's mission, it wasn't just that he was willing to serve God unconditionally, but he served God diligently in the complete absence of any personal advantage with an eye to the future. Complete absence of any personal advantage. Isaiah was called to a ministry that was, we'd say today, maybe we'd use the language of fruitless, hard. 
What do you want me to do, Lord? Uh, preach, proclaim until there's nobody left in the cities. <laughs> until the exile happens, until the houses are empty. And then we're going to keep burning <laughs> until there's nothing but a stump left. So Isaiah, here's your ministry. Go and proclaim. I mean, maybe Noah had a, a worse ministry maybe because he was a preacher of righteousness, we're told. And after 120 years, the only people that got in the ark were his family. I mean, no, nobody followed in. Nobody. No fruit to Noah's ministry, beloved. God called Isaiah to the same thing. This is, this is hard. Did Isaiah say, I'm out? No. He just went to it. God, I deserve to go to hell. I know it. <laughs> Hell isn't just a bare doctrine to Isaiah. He's experienced the woe of it in God's presence. And now he says, Lord, you've taken care of my biggest problem. How dare I withhold anything from you? <laughs> I'm yours. Send me. Isaiah, go and preach. And when you preach, nobody will listen. And when you preach, people will hate you. They will reject your message. They won't want to hear it at all. And all you're going to see is destruction and devastation on account of what it is that you're preaching. Go do it. And Isaiah still goes. But here's, here's the encouraging part of his ministry. Verse 13, the holy seed is its stump. Isaiah knows that there's something about what he's doing that God's going to bring redemption about through. Lord, you're sending me out. Everything's going to be laid waste. But that stump, the holy seed is in there. The remnant that's left, whatever's left after I proclaim this, the holy seed is in there. The Messiah is in there. The seed that God promised in the Garden of Eden is in there. So whatever Isaiah is going to do is going to bring about the Christ. It's going to bring about the Messiah. And so Isaiah says, here, here we go then let's go do this. Beloved, just a few things before we close. Jesus Christ came as a result of Isaiah's ministry, but you would have never guessed it if you had watched it. You would have never guessed it if you'd watched Isaiah's ministry. Beloved, Christ's kingdom comes as you and I are sent out into a mission. God having sent us, our sins having been atoned for, Christ's kingdom comes through our work, even though it may not look like it. Some of us are parents here. We're changing dirty diapers, helping sick kids, and doing things that many times don't even let us get out of the house, right? How's that for an incredible ministry? When you hear of missionaries going to foreign lands, thousands being converted, when you read about D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon and, and people today who've got incredible ministries, how's that compare with changing dirty diapers and telling kids about Christ? How does, how does John the Baptist's ministry how does Paul's ministry compare with Isaiah's? You look at Isaiah and say, Isaiah, you're a failure. You weren't called. That's how we in America, because of our notion of success in the church is just so off base. We'd look at Paul and say, Paul, you're successful. We look at Isaiah and say, Isaiah, you should have never done this. You're horrible at church planning. You're horrible at, at preaching the gospel. Because look at, look at the difference. But God called both of them. And we're just wrong in our assessment of things. How many of us are wrong in our own assessment of what God calls us to? How many of us are saying in our own hearts, Lord, if you'd call me to something great, then I'd go. But what you're calling me to is so small. There's no outward fruit. Nobody's praising me for it. How oh, but beloved, he's advancing his kingdom through your work, through my work. It's so small. He's advancing his kingdom through it. Do you believe it? Will you go 
and will you serve the Lord and will I serve the Lord? Let's say he gives us 60 more years to live or 50 or 40, whatever it is. Will you serve him without question, without conditions and say, Lord, you delivered me in Christ. You've given me everything. I'll do whatever it is you want. Will you do that, beloved? Because that's exactly what Isaiah signed up for. It's what we signed up for when God saved us. Let's, let's pray.